Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to tonight's Marin Conversations at the Mill Valley Community Center. I'm Adam Hirschfelder, the director of the Commonwealth Club's programming in Marin County, and we're pleased to have you here to tonight's program, sponsored by the Marin Community Foundation and Relevant Wealth Advisors. Tonight we feature Joel Selvin and special guest moderator, Tabitha Soren. Thank you for joining us. Uh, hello. Thanks for coming. I was wondering, was anyone at Altamont who's in the audience? All right. About half. All right. That's all I wanted to know. I was not, but now that I read the book, I feel like I was. So I, it's my understanding that Altamont was supposed to be sort of a, a West Coast version of Woodstock, an extension of the peace and love vibe that I've been told so much about my whole life. What happened? (laughs) I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and and talking to everybody I could find that was involved with it. It, it, And and this, for years I've been doing this, since it was a subject of interest that very weekend. Like, when my friends came back, how was it, right? That was where I started this book. Um, and the most amazing thing, in the course of my research, I noticed something, and, and, I, and I just stayed on it, and all the way to the end, and I could never find a single thing that went right for them. Yeah. Everything it was a shit show. went wrong. Everything. So why wasn't it just more peace and love? What... Well, we I mean, have, now let's back up. I mean, where was the peace and love to begin with? See, well, there's a lot of concept that, that Woodstock was all peace and love, right? The, well, and there's the, right. the epitome of that. So that's a myth, too. Oh, let's talk. <laughs> First of all, they tore down the fences and blocked the interstate. You know, come on. That's not responsible behavior. You were supposed to pay 18 bucks to get into right, that show. Right, that's true. It wasn't so free. So that's the first start. The next thing they did was they didn't like the price on the hot dog stand, so they burned down the hot dog stand. Okay? So this was a really pretty rough East Coast crowd. They were not hippies. And if Governor Rockefeller had sent in the National Guard, which he had to be convinced not to do, we'd be telling a different story about Woodstock. So, but do you think Altamont would have happened if Woodstock hadn't been good, so good mythologized? Question. No, I don't think. I think that the Altamont was a product of that whole mythology of, of that Woodstock had created. That that you know we can just sit together on a hillside in peace and love and listen to the rock music. It seemed to me almost that some of the subjects in your book, maybe Sam Cutler. I don't want to get too in the weeds for people who might not all know all the particulars. Half but these they people went to Altamont, and I bet how many they, of you saw the movie, the yeah. Gimme Shelter movie. Yeah, yeah. It so. seemed to me that they were almost in competition with it a little bit. Like they wanted to um, do better, have I, a bigger. I don't think crowd. it was almost. I think it was very definitely. I'm. Uh, uh, under the impression that Mick Jagger insisted on a delivery date of the film to be in advance of the Woodstock movie. So he saw himself as competing with Woodstock at the movies 
course he was in the staging and everything. So one bit of information that I had, well, there are many bits of information I didn't have, but one thing that really struck me, having worked in the music industry a little bit, was how mercenary the Rolling Stones, particularly Mick Jagger, seemed to come off. But in this case, I guess the Rolling Stones had been touring the United States for a year and had been getting a lot of criticism for the ticket prices being really high. And the SF Chronicle music critic was especially hard on them. And so how do you think that influenced his decision to even... um you know, think about having a free concert was one oh, it was a, it compensation. Was a, it was for a being... factor. No, they're, they're, no, it was factor. They, they wanted to be loved by the underground, and uh, getting um, uh, dished by Gleason was bugging them a little. Um, the, the Stones, in, in the history of that rock band, they they can be counted on to act in their own self interest. They're not altruistic or uh, magnanimous. In it's any not regard. a small club. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> so uh, you got you got to factor that into it. And um, I'm just sitting here listening to you formulate that thing. Like, you know, do you think that would go over today? You know, like, oh, did I charge too much? Was 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 five hundred bucks too much for that concert ticket? I, I, I guess I'll do a free concert after that. I mean, I <laughs> well, you know what I kept following back though. It's even further back than the criticism. It went back to the debts that they had in England and the trouble they were having with their manager, and all of these little factors end up with these very serious consequences. And that I thought <laughs> was the through line for your book. That I mean, we all know that it's bad stuff happened at Altamont, but the. Um, some of the tiny little mishaps that accumulate along the way really had serious, serious consequences. Um, but I don't want to get into that immediately. What, can, tell me, tell me how the public first found out about the fact that the Rolling Stones were even considering a free concert it in came, the Bay Area. It came area. out in uh, the uh, pre-tour press conference down in Los Angeles. How many days before the concert was supposed to actually happen? That was quite a ways away. Uh, and they were just contemplating it and uh, uh, made mention of it. Uh, it. It hit the headlines in the underground newspapers at the time. Um, subsequently, in New York, at the end of the tour, uh, Jagger announced the concert date as, well, we're going to do this at December 6th. Now, it so happens that the night before, they lost their um, Golden Gate Park site. They were going to do this in Golden Gate Park. And the night before, that all fizzled. Uh, so he looks out at the press and says, we're gonna, we were going to do this in Golden Gate Park, but we don't know where we're going. We're going to do somewhere near San Francisco on December 6th. So that's how... And what date was that? I like December 1st? Yes, right around Turkey Day. Like, uh, I, th- I think that the be like 26, 27, 28... Something like that. So, a couple uh, weeks away. Imagine. Let's say, f- let's give it two weeks away. Two f- weeks from now, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people going to a free somewhere for, it's not even a concert, it's a festival. It's it's several bands, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's one day, though. Right. The, so but, a, the and you don't know where mob. it is? You don't know where it's going oh, to it gets happen? Oh, wor- it gets worse than that. Uh, uh, the, the, they, That's inconceivable. They finished their tour in Palm Beach, Florida, 
and go off to Muscle Shoals to do some recording that cut brown sugar that week. Uh, and they send a couple of their uh, advanced people out to San Francisco to fix this up with the Grateful Dead. And now the concert is on Saturday, and it's Tuesday. And they go up to Sonoma and find the Sonoma Raceway and get the guys that run the Sonoma Raceway up there to say, yeah, you can do this. So Wednesday, they start building a stage, and they're bulldozing stuff up at the Sonoma Raceway and, and, and loading in sound equipment. And the corporate owners of the Sonoma Raceway get wind of this. Well, this is Filmways, Inc., and these guys know the Rolling Stones. They did the Rolling Stones Los Angeles concerts, and they weren't too pleased about doing business with the Rolling Stones. They didn't want to do any favors. And then they also, they didn't believe that the Rolling Stones were doing this for charity. They'd been told, they told the people at the raceway that they were raising money for Vietnamese orphans. And Filmways, you know, they went no. So they wanted a $100,000 rental. They wanted insurance, and they wanted to distribute the movie since they were in that business. Well, that just shut down the stones immediately. They're just like, no way. And now we're like Wednesday afternoon with no place to go and sound and staging sitting up in Sonoma. And it's, they, they have this uh, lawyer hired, a guy named Mel Belli. So we look old enough to remember Mel Belli. And he's he's on the scene trying to figure this out. Why does he out. have such a big fan club? It's it's a it's a you had to have been there. I in saw the his 60s. picture. Yeah, well, he was he was something. He was a you know San Francisco. He his law office had a window on the street. People stopped and watched him practice law. That's you know Mel Belli, the king of torts. <laughs> anyway, so Belli's tr- trying to get this in, and who else has showed up? Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock. Now nobody asked him to come. He doesn't have any job, but here he is, you know, and and he's just covered in fairy dust. I mean, it's been four months since Woodstock, and he's like the Woodstock guy. And at 4 o'clock on Thursday, Dick Carter calls Melvin Belli's office and says he owns a raceway in Altamont, and he would do it for the publicity. Not Dick Clark. Al, Dick Al, Carter. Dick Carter. Dick Carter. And so, but they can't just say, hey, sounds great. We'll be right over. They, so they dispatch Rock Scully, the manager of the Grateful Dead, and, and really such an important part in starting this whole thing. Uh, and Michael Lang. They get, borrow a traffic helicopter from a radio station, and they send him over to Altamont. And I talked to Ralph, uh, Rock about this. He said they got over the hill and came down on the racetrack, and he looked out, and he saw all this broken glass and all these oil stains and these bashed-up demolition derby cars, and he's just thinking, God, this is hell on earth. <laughs> and, and, and he hears Michael Lang say, this is perfect. We can do it here. And Rock goes, well, this guy did Woodstock. Guess he knows. So they pushed the button at 4 o'clock on Thursday. Downbeat was high noon on Saturday. 
They start tearing down the stage in Sonoma and helicoptering over metal parts. They get on the radio, and radio stations were competing with each other for uh, uh, promotion uh, or value on this station. Everybody was the station you were going to hear about the Rolling Stones free concert first. You know, stay tuned to our station. We'll tell you. And the radio station said, got a fl- uh, trucks. If you got a truck. Go up to Sonoma and take gear over to the new uh, concert site. It was like Dunkirk or something. <laughs> anyway, they couldn't even get enough gear out of Sonoma, so they had to bring the sound system out of the Grateful Dead's place in, in Marin and out of the old Avalon sound system out of San Francisco, and they never put those two sound systems together. They built two separate sound systems and ran them separately. This, and, and I talked to stage crew, man. These guys were... Bless their hearts. I mean, stage hippie stage crew. There was <laughs> nothing like it. They were on everything they could get, and they and they were there to do it. Wood butchers, electrical guys. What do you got, man? You know, no flashlights. Let's get these speakers in phase in total dark. Was that in phase? <laughs> nope. Okay. You know, <laughs> crawling all over the thing. They built that stage and built those sound systems and got it. They were plugging in cables when Santana started playing the conga drums. But they did it. There's a great picture in the book of the front of the stage, a close-up, and the, the, I don't know what you could, the sections of the stage are tied together, and it actually looks like twine, like stuff you get at the hardware store. (laughs) Terrifying. So um, when when they flew over the metal parts from Sonoma, Chip Monk, the uh, Stone stage director, the first thing he said is, I want four 60-foot towers for the spotlights. He didn't know that the spotlights were never going to come. But they built the towers, and then they had only so much metal parts left. So they built the stage, and they ended up with the stage being about three and a half feet tall. That would be a problem. There's a spinal tap. There's very spinal tap quality to that, and then tied it together with twine. <laughs> and, and there's another picture in the book of the of the uh, of audience of the front row of the audience being twined off from you know, don't go over As this line. If... Here's a piece of string now. <laughs> You know, you mentioned Golden Gate Park as the initial site, and if. I'm pretty sure that Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead at that time were having sort of impromptu concerts there periodically. Why was this such a different situation? So it wouldn't have been necessarily, you know, the Rock Scully plan was to announce a concert in the polo fields with the Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead. And then the day of the concert, announce a special guest. The Rolling Stones. That would have been fun. Uh, and the Grateful Dead had the Parks and Rec in their hip pocket. They had a guy uh, who had worked extensively with the city bureaucracy, and he had this whole thing absolutely paved in. Uh, the commissioners were not ready to just um, sign off. They wanted to bring it up and vote on it in front of the board but it was all the votes were in the bag. It was it was like two or three days away from happening. And th- this is where John James comes in. John James, one of our favorite characters in the book. Yes, I never did figure out what he was Nobody doing Nobody ever all, did. No. Ever. No, he, he ended up in prison. <laughs> he signed the papers, though. That's correct. He's, that was he, key. He's, he's, the, he's the signator on, on the concert papers. And he was in the witness protection program. 
And he went to the Rolling Stones at the beginning of their tour and told them that he worked for Chrysler and he could get them cars. And then he went to Chrysler and said, I work for the Rolling Stones. They need some cars. And wound up being like the co-promoter of the tour or something like that. But he was this guy that always was backstage throwing his weight around. I can do this. I can do that. Uh, And when the park deal, he says, oh, I'll handle that. I'll get in touch with the mayor's office. And, uh, you know, the mayor of San Francisco at the time was a guy named Joe Alioto. He was probably the last Republican in California. Uh, And uh, he hated hippies. And as soon as that phone call came in, the concert was over in Golden Gate Park. So that was crucial. And the reason it was crucial was because once the concert moved out of San Francisco... The San Francisco chapter of the Hells Angels no longer had jurisdiction. Now, those guys were civilized. I mean, everybody in the San Francisco chapter was well known to the bands. They were backstage all the time. Uh, Terry the Tramp out of the San Francisco chapter was Owsley's LSD distributor. They were doing about 50 grand a week in uh, chemical sales uh, at um, in the Hate. I assume everyone out there is tripping. <laughs> yes. They were waiting for it to come oh, okay. on. Okay. Uh, and um, the uh, Bob Roberts was the president of the San Francisco chapter. He lived across the street on Ashbury from the Angels. So, I mean, th- those guys were w- well known. And, and if they'd had jurisdiction, all those bad boys from San Jose wouldn't have been busting butts with uh, pool cues. But they move it out of San Francisco, and now it's free-for-all. And Terry the Tramp warned Rock. He said, don't do that, you know, because you're going to lose San Francisco's jurisdiction and it's going to be hell to pay. And Rock said, out of my hands. Um, Can I ask a foolish question? Why would you even have Hell's Angels in San Francisco running security? Couldn't so what? let's let's no, listen. They never ran security. What were they, they doing? Were never at the, they were there at the at the invitation of the producers to do what? Hang out. Okay. And, so, and you invite them because they're coming anyway. <laughs> okay. So then, tell me why it would occur to people to have them as security. They were not ever for, security. So okay. this is a this is a canard. Uh, the, the people in the the angels in the book say that they were hired to protect the stage for five hundred dollars so, a beer. No, or actually, something like here's that. the deal. Okay, is that Sam Cutler and Rock Scully and Emmett Grogan, who was with the Diggers in the Haight Ashbury community, they went to uh, meet with some Hell's Angels over at Ken Kesey's apartment in North Beach. Now, at this point. The concert's still on for Golden Gate Park. So it made sense to meet with members of the San Francisco chapter. They didn't get all the way up the hierarchy. They only got Pete Nell, who was a vice president, and Sweet William, who was, you know, sort of a, a well-known beatnik bohemian punk. He was a, a Lenore Candell's boyfriend. Lenore was the hippie poet of the Haight-Ashbury. So he, he had one foot in the hippie thing already anyway. And then Flash, who I, um, no, I talked to for the book, is one of the last surviving Hell's Angels of that day. He was there at that meeting. And, and, and you know, Cutler didn't understand who he was talking to. He's some teabag from London. He doesn't know who these guys are, that they're authentic outlaws, not just like you know, pretend costume people like hippies or something. But he says, you know, he wants, they wanted to do security. And now oh, Pete Nell met, oh man, we're not 
cops. We don't do that. But we'll come. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll come and hang out. And, and Sam says, that's great. You know, uh, I'm sure you can be helpful. Um, what can we do to show our appreciation? And, and Pete said, we like beer. It puts him in league with Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> All right, let me ask the question another way. Why not have actual police or security guards at this giant if concert? If it had been in Golden Gate Park, there would have been actual police. There would have been running water. There would have been public transportation. There would have been all kinds of advantages that the Grateful Dead product, the people who were thinking of this up, knew would be there. San Francisco was a great idea. That would have worked beautifully. And, they, and by the way, the, uh, one of the, uh, the big plans in, of the San Francisco concert was to use the Hells Angels as the escort guard to bring the stones in. That would have been fun, colorful. And, and don't get all freaked out about the Hells Angels. They've played nicely with the hippies for years. Uh, when the human being was held, the Hells Angels uh, uh, guarded the one electric line. They only had one electric <laughs> line running that thing. And they, and they just put guys down the road on the electric line. They also handled the lost children that day at the human being. Did you know that? The, the Hells Angels were the lost children. We got a lost kid here. And at Altamont, a lot of those guys were uh, right on the scene doing stuff that they were supposed to do taking care of people, working backstage, handling sort of transportation logistics. I mean, they made themselves useful. They weren't all thugs. And the guys out in front with the pool cues were from the San Jose chapter. And that's a big deal. Big difference from the San Francisco chapter. It was only about six months old. It had been formed that summer after a huge turf war, vicious turf war with the gypsy jokers. And so the, the, the guys in the front were a lot of those were initiates, you know, that were trying to get their way into the club. They were acting out. Flash, who's the real deal? I mean, Flash is like, and, and I said, well, Flash, what, what was with the pool cues, right? You know? And he just got, uh, pool cues, man, you know. First of all, they break really easy. Second of all, you can't, you can't get in really close with them, you know. If you want to fuck somebody up, you need a tire chain. <laughs> so, I mean, these were even Bush League Hell's Angels. Who goes to a concert <laughs> with a pool cue? These guys, these uh, San Jose chapter initiates. That's a weird thing. Uh, they intended to use them. Well, so was it? Is it only because of the logistics and the last-minute planning and just general lack of professionalism that Altamont seemed to have? kind of a dark vibe from the second people started playing. It seems like most of the people interviewed just seemed, it just seemed dark from the get-go. Did they have something to do with different kinds of drugs being done then? Well, let's start they, with the astrology. Oh, God. Really? Okay. No, Woodstock, they, they selected the date after conferring with astrologers. Right? <sighs> The astrologers were outraged and upset about the December 6th day. There was a blood moon that night. Really? So the astrology was all wrong. I mean, there were no hippies really, you know, calling the shots on this thing because they would have, you know, rode the t thrown the tarot and, you know, done all that stuff. And, um, but, yeah, drugs were really a big factor. Uh, it, you know... 
present company excluded, I figure half the audience was on drugs. And so that's 150,000 doses. And then we have to like sort of discuss the nature of pharmaceuticals at that point in its development. Because in, in 1966, when, you know, we were all dancing at the Fillmore and Avalon to the Grateful Dead, LSD was being manufactured by very few sort of missionary zealots who uh, went to great lengths to make sure that those compounds were stable and, and, and clean. By 1969, it had really devolved into more of a criminal enterprise, and people were um, putting things in the um, equation to, uh, like, strychnine, which is a poison. They were adding that because it lengthened the trip. Um, and all those people that took off their clothes... Uh, uh, that is, they were overstimulated because that LSD had been cut with uh, methadrine. Now, I, I see Gene Schoenfeld out here, and, and he's Dr. Hip from the Berkeley Barb, but his brother worked the bummer tent at Altamont, <laughs> and he and his, the two uh, surviving uh, guys from the tent, and I had lunch for this, and uh, let me tell you, whoa, did they have stories. Whoa. So, but, uh, so, what do you think? You know, like 40, 50,000 doses of, of bad acid out there? And a, a common thing that I heard over and over and over again was people who got accidentally dosed by drinking some orange juice that they didn't know about or, you, you, you know, what have you. Uh, several people on the film crew reported getting accidentally dosed to me and, and other people as well. So, it's just massive, uh, toxic psych, uh, psychosis. So I don't want to keep comparing it to Woodstock, but <laughs> let's say that a lot of people were on drugs at Woodstock too, but there were no, what, what was the, the difference in terms of the amount of violence that occurred? If, I mean, as somebody who studied well, the minutia. Woodstock was what was known as a good trip. Because the acid was different, or because no, there was because less it, because of it, because everything or? worked. Everything was the sun, you know. Everything was groovy. Once, once the you got injected into a situation like Altamont, overcrowded, angry, violent, hostile, and you have this heightened sensitivity. At least, as far as I understand it, the negativity just crowds you in, in ways that you can't really account for. And that that was also reported over and over again. People that, that were at the concert, and we're going to have these experiences right in this room, many of them had a wonderful time and knew nothing was wrong. They were tended to be up on the hill. Mm. Right? But people down in front where it was so dense that the audience moved in ripples. And then Grill Marcus reported falling but not falling, getting, you know, losing his footing, and, but not falling down and, and, and being on one leg and not being able to get his other leg down because it was so tight. Uh, you mentioned someone, or you mentioned people taking off their clothes, but wasn't there one, I think you call him fat naked man? Yeah, well, he's rather famous. Okay. Um, I just didn't want to use any non-PC... Well, I understand, but we're all um, among hi all former hippies in Marin County. Was the reason he was walking around naked because there was too much 
Amphetamine. Oh, oh, yeah, that's, that's meth. methamphetamines and LSD. That was learned from lunch with Frank, you know, about that stuff. Those guys knew so much about that. They, they had come from, what, San Francisco, uh, USF, right? They were interns at USF. And, and they'd seen what they thought was drug use. <laughs> nah. uh, they, 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 they found some guy who had regressed to the point where he was eating dirt in the tent. And, and he came to and came around and came back to the tent, all, you know, like apologetic. And he turns out to have been a sixth grade teacher. That was a crazy day. In some of the audio that I've heard from the concert, it, you can hear what I presume to be hippies sort of vocally trying to get people who are, you know, beating people up or, 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 you know, pushing people around to stop by saying, you know, peace, love, oh, man, and have, yeah. That, that flashing like, the peace sign at the Hell's Angel with was the pool Was there any cue, evidence really that that had any effect whatsoever? So Bert Kangason was the Grateful Dead's, um, uh, you know, anti-war advisor. He, he was a peace activist. He'd been on all those lines. And he, and he was the guy that handled the Parks and Rec board for them. And uh, he was a very evolved person. And he saw the Hells Angels start to beat on the Latino without any clothes on. And he jumped off the stage and came between them. And he starts in on this, you know, we're all brothers here today, you know. Right? And, and they listened to him. And, and, and they stopped beating him. And, and, and they opened up like a little flannix and, and the, and the naked guy started walking away through the hell's angels. And he got to the last hell's angel and went pow right in his face and then ran off into the crowd. So the hell's angels turned on Bert and there's a rather famous picture. Uh, it's on the cover of the video to Gimme Shelter of these guys holding up pool cues and just raining down pool cues. And you can't see where they're going. They're going to Bert. And Bert took 60 stitches in his head. They wrapped him up with a towel and put a cowboy hat on his head. And you wonder why the Grateful Dead didn't play that day. They saw Bert. They saw their road manager, Rex Jackson, too. Rex had gone after the, the um, angel that decked Marty Ballin. Rex wasn't going to let that happen. Rex was the Grateful Dead's enforcer. He was a big, strapping guy. And when they had problems, they sent Rex in. And Rex got cold-cocked. He just dropped him. He had two black eyes. How did someone in a band... I mean, they, the Hells Angels were supposed to be protecting... Marty Ballon of Jefferson Airplane, correct? Well, How did that happen? Paul Hibbert, who was known to all his friends as Animal, was well known to everybody. He was very, very, very high. And he was obviously confused about things. And he behaved much as you expect angels to behave under those circumstances. And clobbered Marty because Marty was trying to stop the angels from beating on somebody else. And then they dragged Marty into what amounted to backstage. It was really just an empty truck. And uh, Animal comes back. He's crying now. He says, no, I'm sorry, Marty, you know. It, you just can't say that to an angel. And Marty says, fuck you. And he beat him up again. 
He's one of the good San Francisco Hells Angels. Hibbert was a San Francisco guy. Yeah, he was with Civilized Bunch. But, you know, it was too high, yeah. And so, I mean, so was William. William was sitting there. Well, Sweet William was the guy that was giving Cantner all that grief on stage that you see in the movie. Yeah, man, you talking to me? You talking to me? Yeah, yeah, we are, William. Go away. <laughs> so, all joking aside, tell me about the four people whose lives ended that night. There's four, correct? That's correct. Well... There's one guy who's about to turn 18. Meredith. No, no. This no, is a, this is 18 next day. Mm. Uh, he climbed over the fence and got into the canal. And the canal was turned into a pipe in about 100 yards. It was about 36 to 38 degree water. They figure he was dead in 60 seconds to 90 seconds because he just went into the tube and he was covered in water. Uh, they picked out the body at a filter about two miles down. Um, Meredith Hunter, of course, is the one that everybody remembers, and, and with good reason. I mean, this is an 18-year-old black kid with a good-looking blonde white girlfriend who's stabbed to death by the racist Hell's Angels while the Rolling Stones are playing. I mean, good God, how much emblemology do you want? I mean, there's just so many symbols converging there. Uh, and Meredith is a pathetic sociological story. His mother was a schizophrenic prostitute. Uh, he was raised primarily by a sister who was 10 years older than him. She herself, the product of rape. Uh, and they moved her out of that family home when Meredith was about 11 because his mom had gotten a new pimp who was very abusive, and they worried about his older sister. So at age 11, he starts doing his first CYA stint, and uh, he never went to school. He's in and out of CYA the rest of his life, uh, as near as I can figure, and his record's really dodgy. You can't even really tell what they're putting him away for, and his sister doesn't remember. Uh, the, he, he got out in May and met Patty in June or July, probably June. And they really had some kind of relationship. And then in December, he was killed at the uh, uh, concert. Um, he wasn't a Berkeley High student. He wasn't a student. Oh, for he some was, reason, I thought that. He's hung out that. in Provo Park. He, everybody knew him as Murdoch. He sold marijuana in, 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 in matchboxes for five bucks. Anybody remember that? Yeah, uh, and he was just a little, you know, two-bit punk uh, who had never had a chance in his life anyway and had a cool girlfriend and, and, and was kind of styling guy. He had, he had a Mustang, he had his, his own car. Do you think stylishness is what drew... Well, that didn't, that didn't help him in that situation, that green suit. Drew attention no. to him. The green suit and the big afro, no. But he messed with those guys and, and uh, you know, got in one of them's face and, 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 and got his ass handed to him. And, you know, that's what happens. I mean, you knew if you were around angels, you knew not to do that kind of stuff. You knew not to mess with their bikes. You knew not to get in their faces. I mean, even the cops in San Francisco knew to leave them alone. And if you leave them, left them alone, they left you alone. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. 
And can you tell me about why he wasn't taken to a hospital in time to save his life? Because the Stones reserved the helicopter. That's the truth. I talked to Dr. Fine. He was dead within about, like, two months. It was, he definitely, you know, he knew it was his last interview. He was having cancer. He was a wonderful guy. He was an amazing founder of uh, nonviolent doctors for peace. And, you know, he spent his life doing stuff for, for people, not for money. Um, and he uh, uh, was the first person to examine Hunter. He recognized all the trauma, turned it over, and went to try and get the uh, helicopter to medevac him. And it took him a while to find somebody who could be uh, have enough authority to tell him no, and they told him no. They told him the helicopter was reserved for the wrong stones. Now, let me just at this point mention something about the movie. Because it's really a very powerful movie, and there's some great, great stuff in it. But it's a lie. That movie was produced by the Rolling Stones. And that last scene that you know you all remember with them getting up from looking at it, that, that's just the beginning of like painting the Rolling Stones as the victims of this. Well, let me, let me just mention this one thing because there's a very powerful scene where Patty is sobbing backstage, being comforted by a Red Cross worker. And they, Meredith Hunter's girlfriend. Meredith Hunter's girlfriend. And they push the gurney with Hunter's body by in front of the camera and just right by. It's very, like, chilling moment. And then they cut to a shot of a helicopter going up in the sky. Marathoner was never on a helicopter. They took his body to the raceway office, and it sat there for hours and hours because the coroner didn't want to go out there through the traffic. Now, I mentioned this to Stephen Lighthill, who's the uh, former president of the American Cinematographers Association, very distinguished cinematographer who happened to have spent his first day on a professional film crew at Altamont. <laughs> and I mentioned this thing to him, and he was well aware of it. He said, yes, yes, it's a very powerful shot until you realize it's a lie. So, are there any other points in the movie that are completely misrepresentative? No, you know, the, 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 naked, the uh, naked girl who climbs on stage uh, and gets thrown off during uh, one number in thing is out of sequence. Uh, she actually climbed on stage about an hour after that. Uh, but you can't blame them, you know. I mean, there's only so much nudity you can put into a movie like that. Um, the, 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 I, I heard a tape of the um, concert that was recorded by Bob Matthews. Bob Matthews, The Grateful Dead's, live concert recorders. He recorded their album Live Dead, and he brought a 16-track Ampex out there. And, and of course, with the generator giving power, he couldn't get a signal to worth a damn. But, so he didn't record anything until about 15 minutes before the Stones come on. Somebody from the film crew comes in and gives him a 60-hertz signal. So now he can sync and he can record. So he recorded the dead. Uh, the the, the uh, stones, but he won't play it for uh, you know he won't he won't let that out of his hands. He's a very serious steward of this. So I went up and sat in his living room and he played it for me, and it's 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 absolutely instructive beyond belief. So first thing, when the concert breaks down when Hunter was killed, it takes a long time in the movie, but in actuality it took much longer in the concert. It took about twenty five minutes. And and Jagger takes a couple of tacks. He he um, 
and tries a blues song. He tries getting everybody to sit down. That really effective. Let's all sit down now. Let's all sit down now. That, you know, that didn't work. Uh, and then they try a blues song, and that doesn't really work, you know. Uh, and then Mick Taylor, little 22-year-old new kid in the band, says, let's play the new one. And Jagger gets all worked up, and he starts saying, oh, we're going to play a song you've never heard before, you've never heard before. It's going to... And they play Brown Sugar. And it just, everything just comes together in an instant, and the concert just, boom, bolts up. And at that point, they power through to the end. They've got about an hour left in their set, and they just, they just look down, and they go. And Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman are locked in, the two guitar players are like geared up against each other. And Jagger, Jagger's got so much adrenaline and so much fear that he's not doing any of those like kind of loopy caricature type vocals. Man, he's inside every one of those songs, singing them like his life depends on it, and it might. And they just go right through to the end. They don't even stop for the phony encore call. They blitz out of the stage. They push their way through a cyclone fence. They shove 15 people on a helicopter that's supposed to hold five and get the hell out of Dodge. But I tell you, whoa, did they play good. But did playing the song Brown Sugar have any impact on Hunter? Well, he was dead. He was, I mean, he, well, he wasn't dead yet. Probably pretty close to it. So the, are you saying that you think really there's nothing else the Stones could have done to have um, saved him? I, I, I doubt that if uh, uh, Dr. Fine had been able to medevac him, I really doubt that he would have survived. Um, I, I'm not an expert, and Dr. Fine felt the same way. He didn't think that the, the wounds would, you know, that he felt that the wounds were fatal. But backstage, he had no chance. I guess I was just thinking if, if the assault lasted, did you say 25 minutes? No, the, so the breakdown of the concert lasted oh, 25 I minutes. See, the assault I probably see. is about five minutes, three minutes, okay. very you know, short. It's on film. We've all seen it. Uh, are you, well, I guess I wouldn't put it that way. Are, are you surprised that the Rolling Stones haven't taken more accountability for it over all these years? No. no. The Rolling Stones aren't, in, you know, a community uh, conscious uh, group, you know, they, they don't have uh, altruistic values. They're, they're not out to save the world. They've always been about themselves, about making money, and, and about doing what they want to do. And if you're a fan, I mean, that's part of the thing you like about them, uh, is this, this resoluteness. I, I do feel, and, and, and I love the band, I love their music, um, I do feel like they were never the same band. Uh, if, if the, the, the three songs they recorded uh, that week were um, Brown Sugar, You Got to Move, and Wild Horses. And then the rest of the next album, Sticky Fingers, was recorded after Altamont. And it's a completely different band. If you took those three songs off Sticky Fingers, the record's entirely different. Uh, like, there, there's... There's a lot of subtle things and, and, and nuanced things. But uh, the, the best example I can tell you is, is they have a song uh, on the album called Can't Hear Me Knockin', which is a really great sort of classic Stones feel until they get to the instrumental passage. And then suddenly they turn into Santana. <laughs> and they even have Mick Taylor play a Carlos Santana-sounding guitar solo. Now, 
it's true that Santana was like the hippest, coolest band in the world at that point, and, and, and they were just ripe for that kind of appropriation. But that was the first time in the Rolling Stones' career that they felt the need to sound like some other band. The Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Grateful Dead, Rolling Stones, were those? Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Flying Burrito Brothers. Flying Burrito Brothers. Um, For the musicians who are still alive or the bands that had, you know, lengthy careers after Altamont, did any of them uh, have any sort of accountability or apologies or um, did they reconcile with the four deaths at Altamont at all? I mean, the Grateful Dead didn't play, but they, they were more involved in the in the organization of the concert than the other bands that we're well, talking the, about. The Grateful Dead had sent Sam Cutler out. That, you know, the, the Stones just stranded him here. They, they left, and he didn't, they didn't left him without a plane ticket where they figured he'd have whatever cash he had in his pocket was, you know, going to help him. And the, there was some considerable thought that the Hells Angels were looking for him to do him dirt. Uh, and uh, so, so they protected him. They they hit him out and they and they hired him. He he worked for him as a road manager for a number of years after that. But you know, the first few weeks he was under the QT. They took him to Hawaii in January. Uh, so they they had some sense of it in in of, of personal responsibility, uh, and and it was tremendously uh, catastrophic to the Grateful Dead. I mean, they really changed their whole attitude about life after that. They, they, they no longer wanted to become involved with other rock bands or, or they, they decided to n- sell their music and perform their music to their people and do business with their people and not try to get in the music business anymore because that's what happened to them. And, of course, they went into the studio in February about six weeks afterwards. Well, also, they all got arrested in New Orleans in January and that was crucial because that meant goodbye to Owsley. Uh, he was going to go away, and he was already out on bail. So their sound man, their heart and soul, their, their LSD manufacturer was going to prison. That was a big blow. And then February, they go into the studio, and they cut Working Man's Dead in five days. And, and I, I, every time I hear that record and that sort of soft, sweet, unexpected sound from the Grateful Dead at that time, I feel it as a, the tonic it must have been to them for their, the, where they were uh, at as a community and feeling. Because uh, they were even more broke than the Rolling Stones. Financially broke. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mountain Girl told me she was stealing baskets of strawberries at the supermarket for her kids. Um, I guess I meant more, I mean, that that's an interesting change in terms of their sound. But I guess I meant, did you ever hear of any of these, the people at least who lived in the Bay Area, the musicians who lived in the Bay Area, reaching out to any of the families of the victims? So uh, 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 Meredith's mother was party to a lawsuit, and she was represented by, as near as I can figure, seven different attorneys, one after the other. Because they all gave up on her case? I don't really know. Oh. Uh, the sister, who was my source of information, was not aware of too much of these details. But seven lawyers, and she finally signs off for $10,000. And they actually did bring 
San Jose Hells Angel to court? And so Alan Pissarro was yeah. arrested for murder. Alan Pissarro was the San Jose Hells Angel who stabbed Meredith Hunter to death. Uh, and um, he's another sociological case. But uh, the Angels hired George Walker. And George Walker was not just the first black attorney in San Francisco. He was the first black basketball player in the NCAA. He was the first black airman flying over Europe and doing bomb missions. He was an amazing guy. And the reason is because everybody thought he was Indian. So he didn't bother telling them. And, and George, way ahead of, uh, who's OJ's lawyer? Johnny Cochran. So way ahead of Johnny Cochran, he gets an all-white jury for Allen. You know, in Oakland. That's hard to do. (laughs) And George, uh, recently deceased at a very advanced age, just an incredible gentleman, impeccable, uh, brilliantly let the prosecution just show the murder on the screen over and over and over again. They showed that scene of of the killing so many times that the jury was sick of it. They took him to a movie theater the first day and showed it to him on a big screen, and they showed him to him. And when they got to the defense, he just said, see, self-defense. And they put Pissarro on the stand, and Pissarro testified. And it was not even a long deliberation. He was not guilty. That guy had a gun in his hand. And the angels were wonderful. They, not only did they pitch in and pay for Pissarro's attorney, but they showed up the first day in court with all their colors on, and, and Walker took them inside and said, what the hell are you doing? Oh, excuse us. And they showed up from then on out in civilian clothes. You're so they sw- played ball. You're sweeter on the Hells Angels than I am after reading your book. I, I think they got played for Stooges by the Stones. Uh, I mean, but even David Crosby, I read something where he said, you know, if, if, if you don't want the tiger to eat your lunch, yeah. you don't, inv- or you're, if you don't want the tiger to eat your lunch guests, you don't invite the tiger to lunch. And Crosby knows those guys. He used to ride with them too. I mean, look, all of us who know angels understand their sort of credo and, and their trip. And I don't think it's the same way anymore. You know, my my, my nephew hangs out with some of the, the angels these days, and, and, and they strike me as like kind of panty waists. Uh, but uh, the, the the guys that that I knew, you know, like, uh, uh, oh, uh, Charlie Magoo's guys. Uh, and Deke and, yeah, Fu and Deke, yeah. Uh, they, they were, you know, knee busters, mother rapers and, and, and gang killers. I mean, you know, they, they didn't mess around. They're also kind of sensitive, interesting, artistic guys in a funny way. And, and, and Fu, when he died, was, uh, in graduate school at Cal Berkeley. Do you feel like (laughs) this event that happened 50 years ago has any, um, connection to the music industry or concert festivals or, you know, when you read about Coachella or Burning Man or the fire festival that comes up a lot. Any of that. Do, yeah. do you, does it resonate now? Is there some contemporary lesson, um, that we can learn from Altamont? So I don't, I don't think Altamont taught anybody anything as far as I can tell. 
Did you did you notice the, 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 uh, any of this Woodstock 50th concert? Yeah, it seemed like another shit show, but totally. it, it stopped and before it got started, right? Well, yeah, so but, that was but this, guy, this guy, he he ran out of money. He changed this venue. He changed that venue. He changed he changed states. Was it the last still minute. Michael Lang? Yeah, yeah, still Michael Lang. And and he was so frantic at at the last moment. He's got an amphitheater in Maryland agreeing to put this thing on. So he's gone from what 120,000 to 40,000 uh, capacity and about 400 miles, which means that everybody he hired can get out of the contract because the geographics. Uh, he would have put it on on a hill in Tracy. Well, there are, I mean, are, so are you saying that there there aren't that many? People like him who are willing to put things together on a wing and a no, prayer. I'm saying, no, I'm saying I'm saying he's so nuts. He would have he would have done another Altamont to, uh, with that Woodstock. Yeah, he was he was bound and determined to make that thing happen. Although I don't know why anybody would have wanted to do that. That was just an insane idea. Like, you want to go see Santana? Okay, I can see why you, people might want to go see Santana. Would those same people want to see Miley Cyrus? I don't understand that. Uh, so and 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 I don't think the Santana fans are campers anymore. So I mean, you know, I found the whole thing like a little bit misguided and understood. And he just he was so frantic to get back in the sunshine for that moment. I watched this thing devolve, and I kept thinking, this is just like Altamont. He doesn't care what happens. He just wants to throw his concert. Crazy. Well, let's see if anyone. In our audience has any questions? I, I would like, I'm sure many of you have personal experiences that would be really interesting for us to hear about, but if you could keep them short and make sure the sentence ends with a question, that would probably be appreciated by everybody else too. Yeah, I know we, I, that, I noticed that myself, but so no, there, was we, an, we, there was an automobile accident at the end of the concert where somebody stole a car and drove it through the crowd up to 60 miles an hour and launched it when he got to the crown of the hill and it came down on a campfire where a bunch of people were and there was a gal with an infant just she went to the hospital and the infant got thrown clear two guys were killed right there one of them was med a third one was medevaced jim mcdonald he's a a retired fireman down in Santa Cruz, and he was flatlined when they oh. brought him into Livermore Hospital, and they brought him back. His mother came up to, um, oh yeah, so yeah, he'd, he'd known it was cold in Altamont. He'd been through Altamont Pass hitchhiking, and, and, he, and he brought a blanket. So when he got down to the campfire, it got a little cold, and he got the blanket out, and he put it around his body like this, and he pulled it around himself like this, and the next thing he remembers is somebody's got his hand on his shoulder, and saying, hey, this one's still alive. So he goes to the hospital. They, they, they bring him back. His mother comes, and, and she picks up his effects. I guess, I guess they aren't your effects until you're dead. But, uh, and Longing. he's got the blanket. And the blanket, one side of it has his body outlined in squirts of blood. And the other side has a tire track. <laughs> <laughs> Were the dry, was the driver of the car killed? The driver of the car was arrested for a moment. And he was, the, the police recognized him as being on drugs. He, he was uh, raving paranoically about the Hells Angels were chasing him. And the cops 
lost sight of him for a minute, and he was gone. They never, and, and they never found him. They, they didn't realize it was a stolen car. They figured it was his car. And do, do you know what cops call that particular approach to being arrested? They call that leg bail. <laughs> Thank you. Um, does anyone else have a question? Thanks. Uh, I, I suspect, uh, like me, a lot of us probably knew Melvin Belli back in the day. So I, I just bought your book, and I was thumbing through the photos. And there's a photo of Melvin Belli who's aghast during the performance of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And I, after I read the book, I'll probably know the answer to this. But what, what could possibly make Melvin Belli aghast <laughs> at anything? <laughs> That's a fun question. Uh, he went to the concert with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. That's... You know, they had to hotwire a car and steal a truck. Graham was sitting shotgun as David was driving. Uh, my buddy and I and Melvin were sitting on the amplifiers and the guitars in the back. I asked David when he played Napa, I said, do you recall that day? And he looked at me like, I'm just not buying it. So you can talk to Graham Nash or you can talk to Caesar Belli and we were all on that truck together. And then what happened was when Altamont went south, we had an amp and a guitar. We went to the KSFO helicopter, and we just took off in the middle of the racetrack and came back. Two helicopters and one plane. We were stranded in Tracy Airport, and these guys looked like they were going to the parking lot. And they said, no, we're, we're taking our plane oh, over to San Carlos, you know, can you give us a ride? Two helicopters, one plane. It was the ride of our lives. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Joel, I, I was there working underground radio and unfortunately uh, had a pretty close-up view as I was backstage and sometimes on the corner of the stage. But one component that uh, – not only was there a low stage, these JVs, and you knew they were not full Hells Angels because they only had the rocker on the bottom and hadn't earned the Hells Angels thing on the top, had parked their bikes right next to the stage. And you know, if you touch a Hells Angels bike, you're going to get a lot of shit. And that's what it, part of what happened with a lot of the beefs that went on was that people were pushing up and there were the Hells Angels bikes. Incredible. So why did they park them there in the first place? Well, that was the San Jose guys that started that out. They 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 came in early on, and then they're just like sort of I was just parading. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll we'll put this here and and it'll make a barrier, and we'll you know we'll you know, and um, Barger was Sonny Barger, uh, Oakland chapter president, uh, who had brought his guys in like about five o'clock and rode them right through the crowd. That's in the movie, uh, and Barger's on the stage during the stone set. And he's like watching the bikes. He doesn't care about the stones. And he sees some kid jumping up and down on a bike and sees it sparking and starting to set fire. And he goes in after the kid, man. He's going for him. And every other Hells Angel on the stage sees Sonny Barger going into the crowd. They don't know what he's going for, but they're in too. And that's when the melee started. Sonny knocks the kid off the thing, but everybody else just laying waste to everybody in front. And without the Spotlights. Remember, I told you the spotlights didn't come. What they had was 50,000 watts of backlight. When you are on stage 
and spotlights are shining down on you. You're pretty much blinded, and you certainly can't see the audience with any detail. The stones could see the audience. They're backlit, and, and, and it lit the front of the audience like 50 feet or more in front. You can tell by looking at the movie. It's just this parabola of light. So the Stones are on stage, a little bit higher than this stage, but not much, and they're watching people getting just beat with an inch of their life right in front of them, and they see it, which is something they don't usually do when they're on stage. So all this is an incredibly intense emotional scene uh, for the band and for the people in the front row and for the angels who are completely fired up with bloodlust at this point. Gene? Yeah, uh, I was there also. Luckily, uh, I was up on the side of a hill in my brand-new VW uh, camper. And uh, so I watched, yes, the bad part. It started off fine. Uh, people were throwing coffee can lids as frisbees, and I think there was a hot air balloon and then it clouded over, and that started the bad feelings, which were soon followed by the Hells Angels riding their bikes through this massive crowd, and you know, and the mayhem that, that followed that. After Altamont, it was five years before I went to another large concert. It was so terrible. I felt... When I got home, just relieved, safe. Yeah, I, I, I've talked to some uh, uh, high school. She was in high school at the time and uh, had limited resources, uh, you know, not wealthy. And, and she came back from the concert uh, and burned her clothes. And she, and, and she only had really one pair of pants that she wore, but they, they went in the fire. That, that's, that's how she felt at the end of the day. Uh, a couple of questions. Uh, one thing I noted, I was there, uh, was walking up the road uh, where all the cars were parked because we got dropped off at the beginning of that road. And the intense, almost magnetic feeling of the crowd drawing people into it. It was, it was almost like a moth being drawn into a flame of psychic energy. It was, I can I'll always remember that. Uh, but it was too dense to go into the crowd when I got there. But I saw Grace Slick and her event in front with all that beating that was going on that she was commenting on from the stage. What precipitated that? Well, that was uh, a fight in front of the stage that Marty Ballin tried to stop. And he actually got off the stage and got in between the Hells Angels and the guy that they were beating and got fairly beat up himself. Uh, the the uh, road manager, uh, Bill Laudner, was a soldier of rock and roll. And I remember asking Bill, well, what did you do? He said, well, I looked over the edge of the stage and I realized there was nothing I could do to help. <laughs> and they handed Marty's arm up to him and he pulled Marty up on the stage and Marty got up and that's when, uh, when um, Animal knocked him down because he was really mad and he walked past an animal and, and, and cursed an animal. Did any of the artists, while there was fighting going on, while they were playing, stop playing and le try mm -hmm. leaving the stage to calm things down? Well, no, of course, the Stones did. Um, Crosby 
made a really, uh, you know, heartfelt plea to come stop hurting each other. Uh, and while he was doing that, some hell's angel with um, motorcycle spokes that had been sharpened was stabbing Stephen Stills in the leg. <laughs> so, uh, and the Flying Burrito Brothers had no problems during their set. That's when the coffee can lids were passed around. Uh, but the Santana guys, there were 200 people on stage with them. They, 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 you couldn't, you can't even, you can't even see the band amongst all the people. And there were so many beatings going on right in front of them. They just didn't know what to do, and they just wanted to get out of there. Joel, uh, Joel, Tabitha, I have a question here, but first I wanted to thank you both uh, for uh, coming tonight. I have a question for you, Joel, kind of a, a final question. It was in the title uh, of the event tonight, and I want you to reflect both what you wrote in your book, but also this week, as you said, you've had a lot of media requests from around the country and the world uh, talking to you about Altamont. I read a bunch of the articles this week, and it's all about, you know, the end of the 60s, the day the 60s ended. Obviously, there's the chronological aspect of it being December 6th. But there's this real need for the 60s to be over, like Altamont ended the 60s. It's in all the pieces this week. Can you talk about that end of the 60s concept, what you wrote about in the book about it, and then what you heard and what you talked about this week about this end of the 60s piece? Well... First, you got to ask yourself, what was the 60s? Because if it was a chronological decade, it was over December 31st that year, uh, which was three weeks from Altamont. Um, but I think when people talk about the phrase, end of the 60s, they're not really talking about the chronological moment of it. There, there's something to the 60s that was a lesson, that was concept that was a movement even. There were things about the 60s that were different from all other decades. And when we say the 60s, when did the 60s end? I think we're referring to those kind of things really more. And I'm not sure that any of that's ended. Uh, or all of it's ended. I don't know. I, uh, if I was forced to pick a date that the 60s ended... I'd probably say the, the day that Saigon fell. Uh, but every time I drive by a strip mall in Concord and I see a yoga studio, I think the 60s are still with us. I, it, it doesn't go away no matter how hard you scrub at it and, and, and how far away you get from it. Those lessons, those bells cannot be unrung. And those lessons cannot be unlearned. Uh, however, everybody wants to sum up these things for some reason. And it's the Woodstock versus Altamont yin-yang comes up and the end of the 60s comes up. Um, it, it, to me, nothing ended at Altamont. Uh, you know, the Stones didn't end, the Dead didn't end, free concerts in the park didn't end. I don't know what, and the Hell's Angels probably were the closest thing to ending there, and they're not over yet either. So I, I'm not sure what to take out of this Altamont thing. I'm very versed in the details of how it happened and what went on and, and who did what. I've, I've talked to 
ah, so many people and have been fascinated for so long. So as you can tell, I've got a lot of information. But when you're trying to add it up and, and say, what does this mean to our culture? I get a little foggy about it because whatever the lessons I would have taken from them, I don't feel have been learned by anybody. And what the things that you would expect to no longer happen because of Altamont have still happened. And to me, Adam, I thought the, sh the shadow of Altamont was all the way across that, that, that weekend in the desert in Coachella with the Stones and the Who and Dylan and all that. Felt like, well, this is it. We've gone from acid to antacid. <laughs> that seems like a good place to end. <laughs> a good, good answer. Night. Thank you. Thanks.